With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. My life is letting me down the road that's so uncertain. And now I am left alone and I am broken. Trying to find my way, trying to find the faith that's gone. This time, I know that you are holding all the answers. But I'm tired of losing hope and taking chances on roads that never seem to be the ones that bring.
Welcome to Kingdom of God or Nothing. This is your host, Mark Lipton Walter, coming to you live this 24th day of June 2016. You can find us at blogtalkradio.com forward slash the Kingdom of God or Nothing. You can also find us at the Kingdom of God or Nothing.com. And you can find this archived at on iTunes by searching the Kingdom of God or Nothing in your podcasts. So. So, all right, tonight we're going to continue reading the uh, thing that we were reading last night. Let me see here. Okay, sorry. All right, yeah, we're going to continue reading uh, to the remnant the article that we were reading last night. We're going to read part two, and then I'm going to put it on a video because I am exhausted. I've been doing six days a week. Oops, hold on. I was trying to start, and I didn't want it to start just yet. Okay, stop. All right. Anyway, um, I've been working six days a week for a month straight, and I'm uh, good to be working tomorrow, and then I get Sunday off. So I um, just kind of want to relax and uh, um, let's see. Uh, the studio. See how Alan moving before we start. How are you doing, Alan? Doing okay. How are you doing? Busy? Oh, you know, just extremely tired. I, I had the alarm go off for about 10 minutes before I woke up today. And <laughs> I didn't even realize it was going off. I was just like completely out of it, you know. So I dragged myself out of bed and went out the door. I got to, like, I got to schedule. I got to keep doing uh, It's like, uh, I need to have some caffeine injected into my veins or something. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. So, I know what that's like. What's that? I know what that's like. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully I train a new guy on Monday, and hopefully uh, he'll work for me on Monday. Um, but we can't get a hold of him. My boss and I keep calling him, and he's not answering his phone. So Emmett, stop talking to me. Emmett's trying to answer questions that I guess he thinks I'm asking him. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, let's just, um, I'll uh, have you mute yourself and then I'll pop into prayer and uh, we'll read uh, just part one of um, of this thing okay. on To the Remnant. It's really interesting. Oh, let's see here. All right. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank thee, Father, for the opportunity to be able to do this program. And we thank thee for being able to use this technology to spread thy word throughout the whole earth. We desire to come into thee more fully, to be tools in thine hand, to bring about the redemption of Zion. And we just ask that Thy spirit be with us as we dedicate our time unto thee at this time. We say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, here. 
pull this up. And this is, you can find this at totheremnant.com, and it's uh, Our Fruits Forbidden. Uh, in my previous post, we discussed, discussed the definitions of scriptural hallmarks of prophets, seers, and revelators. These are spiritual gifts with specific fruits, not offices or titles. These gifts are vital for the proper leadership of the church. Each of these gifts bear specific fruit. And this is how we know, or we may know them. Uh, and that's quoted uh, Matthew chapter 7, 15 through 20. Let's see what that says here. I'll pull that up. There's links in this article, so it's not hard to actually pull up the links. Uh, so we're going to go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Let's scroll down here. Oh, okay. So this one says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good fruit or good tree. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So, let's see here. As the Savior commanded, we must know a prophet by examining his fruits or her fruits, because there's prophetesses as well. Anyway, in today's installment, we'll examine the fruits as they are manifest in the modern church leadership and what this implies for us. The gifts today. So how do our modern prophets exercise the gift of prophecy? President Hinckley explained more about his role as a prophet for the church in 1997 in an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle. Question. And this belief in contemporary revelation and let's see, and this belief in contemporary revelation and prophecy, as the prophet tells us how that works, how do you receive divine revelation? Uh, what does it feel like? Answer. So this is President Hinckley. Let me say first that we have a great body of revelation, the vast majority of which came from the prophet Joseph Smith. We don't need much revelation. We need to pay more attention to the revelations we've already received. Now, if a problem should arise on which we don't have an answer, we pray about it, and we may fast about it, and it comes quietly. Usually no voice of any kind, just a perception in the mind. I liken it to Elijah's experience. When he sought the Lord, there was a great wind, and the Lord was not in the wind, and there was an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake, and a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. But in a still small voice, that now that is the way it works. So that was President Hinckley, which, uh, yeah, that's that's the way it works sometimes. Um, but anyway, anyway. Now, I love President Hinckley. His wisdom, humor, gentle nature were wonderful and endearing. 
he felt like a grandfather to me, and I do not mean to show him any personal disrespect, but I believe it is an, uh, it is appropriate to examine his public or his public statements when acting in his capacity as church president. It's our obligation to do so. Did you catch what he said? First, the prophet said we really don't need, need much revelation. In light of the current situation in the world, and what is shortly coming, I find this statement surprising. I need a great deal of revelation to lead my own life and lead my family. I can't imagine that are the complexities of leading a worldwide multi-billion dollar, multi-million member organization would require any less, especially in the last days of the fallen world careening wildly towards chaos. Can you imagine Joseph Smith? ever making such a statement? No, Joseph said very much the opposite. In Doctrinal History of the Church, volume 4, page 588, it says, The church must be cleansed, and I proclaim against all iniquity. A man is saved no faster than he gets knowledge, for if he does not get knowledge, he will be brought into captivity by some evil power in, uh, in the other world. As evil spirits will have more knowledge and consequently more power than many men who are on, um, than many men who are on the earth, hence it needs revelation to assist us and give us knowledge of the things of God. End quote. President Hinckley also said that revelation to the prophet comes not by an audible voice, visions, um, visitation, angelic ministers, face or or face-to-face consultation with the Lord, the way it so often came to Joseph Smith. But rather, he said, it comes by a still, small voice in the mind um, ever uh, after fasting and praying. See, in in, um, 3 Nephi chapter 22, um, and he's quoting Isaiah, but he speaks it as well. He talks about the work of the Father commencing and those, those things, but he said, he says that he would hide his face with us or from us for a little season, and so these prophets don't get face-to-face revelation with the Lord uh, or visitations or angels or anything else because of the curse that's been placed on the church that that um, that was placed on. It talks about in section 124, which if you listen to the other programs, we've explained that, but. But they don't have any of these things. So when people are like, well, the prophet talks to Jesus Christ every Thursday because they have a meeting. Actually, no, he doesn't. And Hinkley never saw Jesus Christ. So, well, this is exactly the way it comes out or comes to anyone who has not received the gift of prophecy, seership, or revelation. Because they say, well, we're the prophet of the church, so if we don't get it, you can't. And when you tell them about your experience with Jesus Christ, they tell you that you're not allowed to talk about it because it's too sacred, because they don't want you to upstage them. So the still small voice of the Holy Ghost is available to all who will receive the Holy Ghost, from the president down to the least saint. You don't even have to be a saint to receive revelation through the Holy Ghost. And that's true, because the Holy Ghost testifies of truth of all things, no matter where that truth is being spoken. So if you feel the Holy Ghost when you're listening to Joe Olstein or Billy Graham or President Hinckley or President Monson, well, 
It doesn't mean that they're a true messenger. It just means what they're saying at that moment is actually true, and the Holy Ghost testifies to it. So when I was Baptist, my preacher would preach and tell us all about Jesus Christ, and I would feel the Holy Spirit. And the Holy, because the Holy Spirit was testifying of truth. And when I met the missionaries and I was taught about Joseph Smith and the first vision, the Book of Mormon, I felt the same Holy Spirit that I felt when I was baptized. And that's how I know that the church, um, well, that the gospel is true anyway, because the church is not, uh, not true. The gospel is true. Um, there's a very big difference between the gospel and the church. The church may have some of the gospel in it, and it drives me nuts because they're like, we have the fullness of the gospel. Yeah, well, you have all this knowledge, but you don't live it. So if you don't live it, um, don't you think there's some kind of condemnation? Oh, but the scriptures say that. But anyway, continuing, given the opportunity to explain something more, to testify of God's gifts to the church, to proclaim that miracles, visions, and angels have not ceased, that revelation continues and the heavens are yet open. President Hinckley instead gave us a sunbeam answer um, that babies come from a stork and that the prophet fears and revelator does none of these things. Because, as he pointed out, they are really not much needed. As we might expect, Scripture has something to say on this topic. Third Nephi chapter 29, verse 6 says, Yea, uh, yea woe unto him that shall deny the revelations of the Lord, and that shall say, The Lord no longer worketh by revelation, or by prophecy, or by gifts, or by tongues, or by healings, or by the word of the Holy uh, or by the power of the Holy Ghost. End quote. President Hinckley also noted that when a problem arises from which the leadership doesn't have an answer, the prophet takes it to the Lord. Ironically, it was the lack of spiritual answer concerning women and the priesthood that led Kate Kelly and the ordained women movement to petition the First Presidency to take the matter to the Lord. Just ask God. That was their request. And rather than doing so, the church brought it church brought its considerable PR and disciplinary might down on the heads of those who dar uh, dared ask the first presidency to act in their office. <laughs> the question remained unanswered and Kate Kelly was excommunicated. So it's like, so you say you're a dentist, well, fix my teeth. Um, how dare you say I'm a dentist and I don't have to fix your teeth if I don't want to, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, but you say you're a prophet, seer, and revelator, so will you please take this before the Lord and ask him? And, well, how dare you tell me what I have to do? You know, we shouldn't have to get revelations because you ask. Whatever. It's too sacred to mention. But wait, some say, how do you know the prophet is meeting with Jesus every uh, Thursday night in the temple? Actually, they meet on Thursday mornings, not Thursday nights. Because when I got the call on Thursday afternoon to, uh, that President or that I was going to have a visitor when it was Elton Perry, that was on a Thursday afternoon. Um, so I would assume that their meeting was in the morning, not at night, because um, I sent I, I sent the letter off about my experience in the Holy of Holies with the Father and the Son and. I sent it off on Monday, 
I know they have the meetings on Thursdays. I got the call in the afternoon, so that means that they had already they've reviewed that letter by that time. So, so you know, it's in the mornings. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm just anyway. Who are you to claim um, our prophet doesn't receive visions, angels, and visitation? What makes you think they would ever tell us if they did? Such things are too sacred to talk about. They would never reveal such things publicly. No, they they would reveal them if they had them, but they don't get them, and they don't want you to talk about it. So they say, "Oh, it's too sacred to talk about." Um, actually, I never or actually I hear this a lot. Let's so let's get past the preschool answer that we don't talk about that, and the shoulder and shoulder the more mature responsibility of studying the scriptures and thinking for ourselves. When prophets meet God or an angel face-to-face, they are obligated to tell us about it. This is what the prophets are for, and this is what they do. In Exodus 3.15, it says, And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you, and this is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 107, verse 91, it requires the president of the church to be likened to Moses. I would submit that at least one of the ways he should do this is by plainly stating he has been given a message by God. Joseph Smith did so, and this is always the pattern. In um, Moroni chapter 7, 29 through 32, it says, And because he hath done this, my beloved brethren, hath miracle ceased. Behold, I say unto you, nay, neither have angels ceased to minister unto the children of men. For behold, they are subject unto him, to minister according to the word of his command, showing themselves unto them of strong faith and firm mind in every form of godliness. And the office of their ministry is to call men into repentance and to fulfill and to do the work of the covenants of the Father, which he hath made unto the children of men, to prepare the way among the children of men by declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord, that they may bear testimony of him. And by so doing, the Lord God prepareth the way that the residue of men may have faith in Christ, that the Holy Ghost may have place in their hearts, according to the power thereof, and after this manner bringeth to pass the Father the covenants which he hath made unto the children of men, end quote. There must be those whose knowledge reckons uh, directly from heaven, or else the rest of us would know nothing at all concerning heaven, and therefore could not exercise faith. Our apostles are obliged to bear their special witness of Jesus Christ to the world, because this is their office. But they they bear testimony of him the way anybody bears testimony. You know, they don't say, uh, yeah, I've seen him. You know, uh, he's resurrected, and, you know, he really truly does live. But they say, we know that he lives. But when, when you ask him if they've ever seen him, well, there are some things that are more powerful than actually seeing him face to face. In Joseph Smith's day, the original 12 were charged at their ordination, their ordination as follows, quote, You have been indebted to other men in the first instance for evidence on the 
that you have acted, but it is necessary that you receive a testimony from heaven for yourselves so that you can bear testimony to the truth of the Book of Mormon and that you have seen the face of God. That is more, and this is the ordination of the original 12 in this dispensation, that that is more than the testimony of an angel. When the pro- a proper time arrives, you shall be able to bear this testimony to the world. When you bear testimony that you have seen God, this testimony God will never suffer to fail, but will bear you out. Never cease striving until you have seen God face to face. Strengthen your faith, cast, faith, cast off your doubts, your sins, and all your unbelief, and nothing can prevent you from coming to God. Your ordination is not full and complete till God has laid his hand upon you. We require as much to qualify as did those who have gone before us. God is the same. If the Savior in former times laid his hand upon his disciples, why not in the latter days? That's minutes of Kirtland, Ohio, 20, uh, 21st of February, 1885, minute book, page 158 through 159. Um, and I'll, I think it was Martin Harris said when he ordained them, he said your ordination is not complete until um, until the Savior comes and, and uh, lays his hands on your head. Oh, maybe they'll get to that. But this is another quote. It's just as good. Anyway, yet these days we are told that some things are too sacred to talk about. What? Since when? We can't talk about the way back to God. We can't bear testimony that it is possible to be redeemed from the fall, that angels still minister to men, that Jesus Christ yet lives and receives all those that come to him. But see, they do that, but they do it by faith but not actually being special witnesses because I can have faith without actually seeing God face to face. But if they're apostles, they should be eyewitnesses sent to the world and they should be testifying that they have seen God face to face. Anyway, that our prophets know him personally and have seen him face to face that they have been ordained by him just as in former days, but they can't say it because they don't get it because the Lord said and he has done what he said. He has hid his face from us for a little season because we hindered the work in building the temple whereby the Most High could come to war and uh, that he could restore the fullness of the priesthood, which we as a people don't have. Anyway, if such things were not too sacred for Joseph to talk about, what changed? Did they become more sacred or have things, cha- uh, have things ceased? And we are left to assume that they still happen based on the nebulous statements or evasive answers about sacred things. Why would a prophet not declare he has received revelation? The message they share. I've never met President Monson, but everything I've heard about him tells me he's a good man. He has devoted his, except for he uses um, his talks to manipulate people's emotions to, like, kind of substitute with the, you know, oh, it's so good, that talk is so wonderful, and it made me cry, therefore I must have felt the Holy Spirit or something. I I don't know. I, that's why I had a problem with him, how he would do that, and that's what caused me to ask God, is this man really truly your prophet? And God told me, no, he's only a steward until he who's writing his true and rain comes. And that is actually before I ever 
found out who I was. Uh, God told me that. So anyway, he has shouldered a terrible burden for us in running the church, and I am grateful for all his good works. He has set the example of Christ-like service and compassion, uh, compassion that ought to instruct us all, except for he takes a $500,000 stipend every year to do his work. That's not Christ-like service. That's being paid in a business corporation in Babylon. (sighs) But according to Christ, I'm not to examine the prophet as a man or even examine his works. Rather, I'm to look at his fruits. Therefore, to take the measure of this prophet, I'm obliged to examine President Monson's prophetic pronouncements. Oh, and the other thing, too. So, like Bill Gates... Millions, millions, millions of dollars a year to charity, right? Well, he gives of his own money. Well, um, let's see, the church gives the tithing, and because the church gives that out and helps money they didn't earn, um, that can't be a fruit that you look at because the heathen Bill Gates does the same thing. And should we look at his fruits and say, oh, his fruits? You know, it's just, unfortunately, I'm not aware of any fruits. President Monson has taught great truths, told inspiring stories, are the tearjerkers that get you to cry and think that you're filling the Holy Spirit, and quoted scriptures throughout his ministry, but I have not been able to find any instance of him claiming to have a message from God, a vision, a heavenly visitation, or any new truths revealed. In fact, quite the opposite. He tends to dwell on the same things repeatedly, even to the point of recycling conference talks. Nevertheless, I find his words inspiring, his cops talks uplifting, but let's not confuse inspiration with revelation. These are different things. I've heard countless church leaders and non-leaders alike at all levels give inspired inspired talks about important truth. They spoke and still speak by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, but these are not were not and are not revelations. See, they 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 don't even expound deep doctrines because they don't they don't get revelation about them. They just stick to the basics all the time. From a prophet, the scriptural pattern tells us we should expect something different, and from President Monson, we should get something different, but not in the way we might hope. In all seriousness, unlike most other general authorities and even general church members, President Monson has not testified to the Church of Joseph Smith or the Book of uh, Book of Mormon in the last nine years. And actually, it's been longer than that uh, at this point, not even once. There's been an exhaustive study of the topic, cataloging every testimony he has borne in general conference. And in all, and in, and in the 69 general conference talks he has given since October 2005, he has never once borne personal testimony of Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon. Now, I'm certainly not telling him he, uh, what he ought to say or how to run the church. That's his responsibility and authority, not mine. But I do find it odd that given 69 opportunities to testify to the world that he, um, he has not once felt to testify of our unique foundational truths, that even our primary children are taught to witness, 
And of course, it goes without saying that he has never claimed to have received a revelation, a prophecy, or a vision. If we are to know him by his fruits, there is simply no fruits to examine. I might add to save time for those inclined to accuse are not evil speaking of the Lord's anointed. Well, you can't speak evil of the Lord's anointed when he's not the Lord's anointed. Not even close. In fact, we haven't had a Lord's anointed since Joseph Smith died until now. Anyway, and I received the anointing in his hands, so... I've spoken positively about both President Hinckley and Monson while examining their message and stating facts about their public pronouncements. If you find these facts negative or even evil, that's your opinion. You should ask yourselves why you're so uncomfortable with these facts. Laying aside that juvenile uh, definitions, laying aside the juvenile definitions, now that we have the facts in front of us, with all the emotions aside, we must ask ourselves, as rational thinking adults, what evidence we have that our current church leaders are prophets, seers, and revelators according to the scriptural pattern. Even if we join, uh, I'm sorry, even if we just focus on the president, our President Monson, what has the prophet prophesied? What has the revelator revealed? And what has the seer seen? Please don't think I'm writing against President Monson. I'm not. I'm I'm cheering him on, praying for him, and hopeful that God will sustain and support him in his duties, including his duties to obtain and exercise the gifts of the Spirit. I want him to prophesy, to reveal, and to see. The church so desperately needs these gifts. My state president asked me if I believe Thomas Monson is a prophet. I replied, I don't know if he is or isn't because I've never heard him prophesy, and therefore I have no way to apply Christ's test to tell if he is a prophet. It was a very honest answer to a difficult question. I certainly opened, oh, I'm certainly open to the possibility that he is, and indeed I hope he is a prophet, but I can't pretend to know what I do not know. Believing, insert his name, is a, insert his profession here. I'll pull out the dental analogy again. It's like being asked if a man you've never met is a dentist, even though he has never personally claimed, even though he has never personally claimed to be one. People may say he is. He may be loved and respected for his stories about teeth, and he may be a wonderful man to boot. He may own a set of dental tools and come from a long line of dentists, and he may spend all of his day in the dental office, but unless he actually fixes teeth, it's hard to say whether he's a dentist or not. People whose teeth he has never fixed and who have never seen him fix a single tooth may bear you their solemn witness that he is most definitely or that he most definitely is for sure a dentist. Absolutely honest to, um, yeah, oh, sorry. I know, <laughs> Kim's like, this is a good analogy. They may just know it by every fiber of their being, but in the end, such testimonies are expressed in the hope in the absence of any evidence. There is not, uh, this is not the same thing as knowledge. Claiming that a man is a dentist 
a rock star, an astronaut, a rodeo clown, or a prophet does not make him so. Claiming he is one of these things in a complete absence of evidence demonstrates a defective thought process and, in the case of a prophet, a disregard for Christ's words. There may, uh, there are many gospel principles, including the existence of God Himself. We must accept by faith. Actually, the fullness of faith uh, is knowledge. That's when you actually see Him face to face, and then you can know for sure that He He lives. But anyway, oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> But the prophetic claim is not one of them. Jesus Christ specifically told us the opposite. We are to test the prophetic claims of men based on evidence if we want to avoid deception. You shall know them by their fruits, or in other words, don't just believe whatever is claimed about someone. Examine their fruits, pretending to know some things, to know something in some other way contradicts the Lord's command. So I won't do that. Let me just say. We can look at his fruits because he's a public figure, but there's a lot of people out there that refuse to accept me and my witness, and they don't even know me or my fruits at all. And they refuse to check out my fruits, you know, uh, to test it by, you know, in, or get any revelation or anything, and they just completely reject it, my witness and everything else. But I say, because I'm not the prophet of the church, you know, you, gotta, you have to actually study things out to the Lord with a believing heart and then ask him if what you believe is true. So if you believe Monson is a prophet, study out what he's done, look for his fruits, take it to the Lord and tell God, I believe Thomas Monson is a prophet, seer, and revelator. Please help me to know the truth of the matter. The Spirit burns in you. You feel the fruit of the Spirit. Then you can know that he is at least a prophet. But if the Spirit withdraws from you and you feel depression and anxiety and all of this type of thing, that's the fruit of the adversary. Or if you don't get an answer at all, then that's you know, you've got to study it out more and take it seriously before God's going to give you an answer. Now, if you cause yourself to feel all, like, dewy inside or whatever, and whatever, <laughs> you're just manipulating yourself, and that's all you're doing. So, but this whole thing of disbelief, like, I believe Thomas Monson was a prophet, but I had a problem with his manipulating. And when I asked God if it was true, he told me it wasn't. So it's kind of like, you know, when I was in the Baptist church, they'd be like, let me tell you a story about Jesus. And that's, you know, and we are completely set in order because we teach Jesus the way he is. And the gospel we teach is all true. And this book, this Bible is true. And it's like, no, it, it, like just because you teach some truths doesn't make you completely infallible. And just because the church has the Book of Mormon, and that is true, doesn't make the church true. It just means that what some of the stuff that they teach is true. And, like, I get a kick out of this, too. Like, when I was a missionary, we taught people about Joseph Smith and about the Book of Mormon. 
and people would get a testimony of that, and we'd be like, so you want to get baptized? <laughs> you know, but we never taught them about, well, we have prophets today, and let me tell you about Thomas Monson and how he became a prophet. Well, he was chosen to be part of the Quorum of the Twelve, and but he doesn't have any example of how he is actually a true apostle, other than he's really good at bearing his testimony, apparently. You know, I can do that too, and so can Joel Osteen, and so can Billy Graham, and so can all of these other guys that... <sighs> anyway, there are many gospel principles including the existence of God himself that we must accept by faith. But the prophetic claim is not one of them. Jesus Christ told us the opposite. We are to test the prophetic claims of men based on evidence if we want to avoid deception. You may know them by their fruits. Or in other words, don't just believe whatever is claimed about someone examine their fruits. Pretending to know something in some other way contradicts the Lord's command. So I will not do that. When confronted with the question of whether Joseph Smith was a prophet, there are ample fruits by which to show. When facing the question of whether our modern leaders are prophets, the fruit trees are better. And yet, according to the official church policy, before we will allow anyone to be baptized, they must satisfactorily answer the following question. Do you believe that current church president is the prophet of God. And what does this mean to you? Before they will allow people to obey Christ's command and receive his command, commanded ordinance of baptism, the LDS church has added an unscriptural requirement that a convert must confess a belief that a man who has never prophesied is indeed a prophet. And thus they teach converts from the outset or from the onset that becoming a Mormon requires one to suspend reason and ignore scripture in favor of conformity with the group thought. This contradicts Christ's doctrine and cometh of evil. Third Nephi chapter eleven verse forty. Sustaining the prophet. Unlike his interview, the temple recommend question doesn't ask about whether we believe or know a man is a prophet, but rather it phrases it as follows. Do you sustain the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a prophet, seer, and revelator, and as the only person on the earth who possesses and is authorized to exercise all priesthood keys? This brings up the question of sustaining. What does it mean to sustain the president of the church? See, I sustain him as a president because he is, but I can't sustain him as a prophet, seer, and revelator because he doesn't have any of the fruits of prophets, seers, or revelators at all, not even a little bit. He just he can tell good stories and he can run a corporation like a businessman in Babylon, but he doesn't have any of, the, of those other gifts. The dictionary says that to sustain is to uphold, support, and maintain. I take this to mean that if I sustain the president of the church as a prophet, seer, and revelator, I support the idea that he should obtain and exercise these gifts, and that I uphold his right and duty to lead the church, and that I contribute to his maintenance with my tithes. Well, you know... 
that's something else too. Okay, so I I have people that give tithing to the Church of the Living Messiah, but they give it to the bishop of the church, and I don't get that. When Joseph Smith was prophet of the church, he had his own store that he sold general goods at. Still worked. He didn't require the, the church to pay for him, you know, or to you know, even though like if he goes, if, you know, if he goes on a mission, maybe uh, you know the church should help. But you know, I, I do this, and even though I have received tithes in the church, I don't take them. I, in fact, the money that I make, I I pay a tithe on that as well. Um, and that's what I use to uh, do the radio show and to make garments and to do other things that are, but, you know, but that, that I don't actually take tithing from the people for the maintenance. And Joseph Smith didn't either. He had his own store. He worked at his own store. It's kind of funny in Nauvoo, um, gone a little tangent. But um, his friend Porter Rockwell, who he was friends with in Palmyra before any of this, I think they met when they were like nine or something like that, were friends from way back. And um, Porter Rockwell, who I have a statue of in my house, he didn't have a job and he needed money. And so Joseph was like, well, I can help you out with that. And so Emma was gone or this never would have happened. But he cleared out a portion of his general store there in Nauvoo, and he put some tables and some chairs out, and he actually made Porter Rockwell the bartender at his own little whiskey bar inside Nauvoo. Now, remember, the word of wisdom was not turned into commandment until the 1920 prohibition came around, and Hubert J. Grant was like, hey, we can do that too. And then ever since then, you know, the word of wisdom has been a commandment, but Joseph Smith, the night before he died, he and the other guys, uh, John Taylor, um, Hiram, and Franklin, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. Anyway, they shared about a large jug of wine because they were down in their spirits. Joseph Smith had a whiskey bar. Brigham Young had a brewery. You know, and Joseph Smith used to ride around the horseback with a big fat cigar hanging out of his mouth. But after Hebrew J. Grant, now, oh, that's horrible. You should never do that. That's a repentance. <laughs> I love you too, Kim. You can't go to bed. But I want to go to bed too. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Good night. Love you. See you tomorrow. Yes, you should pack food tomorrow. Okay. All right. Do I sustain President Monson? I absolutely recognize his right to lead the church. I pray for him to be guided as he does so. I believe he was placed in that position by God. I he well, that's like what God told me. He's only a steward. That's kind of like the Return of the King, um, the J.R. Tolkien book that's the hobbit like there was a man who was like on the throne until the king returned and then that man was cast off you know and the, the king returned well guess what 
Thomas Monson is sitting on the throne. He ain't the king. And he's going to be booted out when the time comes, or whoever it is that is alive when all this stuff goes down. Anyway, I pray that he will receive and use the spiritual gifts on behalf of the church. I explained this, or that this, or this to my stake president, and my stake president took away my temple recommend. At least he wasn't as bad as my stake president. He just kicked me out of the church. <laughs> Evidently, I wasn't worthy of a recommend because I didn't believe Thomas Momsen was a prophet. I, ex- I explained to the that the Temple Recommend interview does not require me to believe in any such thing. I am required to sustain the president, and I did, and I did, and I do. I assume my state president's definition of sustain was more in line with what Elder Nelson said in last general conference when he said, our sustaining of prophets is a personal commitment that we'll do our utmost to uphold their prophetic priorities. Our sustaining is an oath-like indication that we recognize our calling as a prophet to be legitimate and binding upon us. This is new doctrine. I can't find anything in the scriptures about the requirement to sustain a man, let alone make an oath-like indication to to another mortal man's priorities. I'm not aware that God seeks to bind us to anyone but himself. Our loyalties must be to our Lord. The prophet's role is to deliver a message from God, not to demand loyalty to himself. Absolutely right. The crucible of contradiction. And so here is the contradiction I still find troubling. In the Temple Recommend interview, as a parent, that on one hand I must claim to believe the false pro- pro- um, proposition that a man who has never prophesied is a prophet. On the other hand, I must also claim to be honest with my fellow men. A failure to make both of these mutually exclusive claims may mean denial of a temple recommend, barring you from entering the temple that was paid for by your tithes, because you are unworthy. I don't know how to resolve this contradiction. I've tried and failed. Maybe you'll do better. But what if? So what if President Monson announced a new revelation tomorrow? What if we saw a vision or met, or what if he saw a vision or met an angel? Or what if he like put out one of those new manifestos like, uh, to whom it may concern, the Lord has now declared that homosexual marriages shall be sealed in our temple. Amen. You know, because that's the next one that's coming down the pike. Like, they write these false revelations that don't even sound like revelation. And people are like, yeah, that's from God. Yay. Spencer Kimball. Yay. Go, go. They make mention of the revelation they supposedly received in the first in the 1890 manifesto and also in the 1978. But they never give you the actual revelation ever. It's a false. It's false. It's a lie to beat the devil at his own game. Or with the 1978 thing, it was Spencer Kimball having uh, been told by Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time, you do this or we're going to take away your 501c3 status. 
comes to scale your properties. So, oh, yeah, we got a revelation. Don't you worry, Jimmy Carter. We'll do it. <laughs> Second, it would then be the obligation of the church members to take the matter up with the Lord to receive divine confirmation that this was indeed from God's word. Failure to do so while accepting the message only by virtue of President Monson's office alone would leave the church members as blind followers not having received God's word for themselves. And you can't just, like with the first manifesto, they like present it in general conference and then they want you to immediately sustain it. Well, how are you supposed to pray and fast about something if they just throw it in your face and say, you sustain this? You know, if you got a revelation that this is right, well, um, let me, like, study it, ponder over it, and take it to the Lord, and then I can, like, sustain it if it's true. But, you know, <laughs> only blind followers can lead astray. Those who know they should ask God and know how to receive the Lord's ratification of, of a message cannot be led astray. See, they're built upon the rock of revelation. They can discern by testing the fruits just as Christ taught. Hans Brigham Young said that this, uh, this is a quote from the Journal of Discourses, volume 9, page 150. What a pity it would be if we were, uh, if we were led by one man to utter destruction. Are you afraid of this? I am more afraid of this people have so much confidence. I'm more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire of themselves of God whether they are led by him. I am fearful they settle down in a state of blind self-security, trusting their eternal destiny in the hands of their leaders with a reckless uh, confidence that in itself would thwart the purposes of God in their salvation and weaken that influence they could give uh, and weaken or weaken that influence they could give to their leaders. Did they know for themselves by the revelations of Jesus that they are led in the right way? Let every man and woman know by the whisperings of the Spirit of God for them, or to themselves whether their leaders are walking in the path the Lord, Lord dictates or not. This has always been my exhortation continually. End quote. Unfortunately, such discernment is is rarely among humanity. Joseph Smith said in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 206, the world always mistook false prophets for true ones. And those that were sent of God, they considered to be false prophets. Hence, they killed, stoned, punished, and imprisoned the true prophets. And these had to hide themselves in deserts, in dens and caves of the earth. And though the most honorable men of the earth Though they were the most honorable men of the earth, they banished them from their society as vagabonds. Whilst they cherished, honored, and supported knaves, vagabonds, crits, impostors, and the basest of men. It's because a true prophet comes and he doesn't just pat you on the back and say, I was well in Zion and Jesus lives and everybody gets salvation and wow, good. They actually have a message and they actually correct false doctrines, but people that believe false doctrines would be true, they don't want to be corrected because they don't want to be told they're wrong. So especially if they're a prophet in in a church that can't be set astray, they can't be told that they're wrong. 
you know, by some uh, some carpenter that comes out of Nazareth or some shepherd that comes out of the field or by some truck driver that comes, you know, out of nowhere from the east, um, you know, who who is that guy to say anything? Well, I don't know. God told me to, you know, he told me to be bold in my testimony. And so, oh, and so with these warning, or writing, sorry, and so with these warnings in mind, ask yourself who you accept as a prophet and why. Has he delivered prophecy and can you identify it? Has he proclaimed it as original, originating directly from God? Have you studied it for yourself and taken the prophecy to the Lord and received confirmation that the word indeed came from God? If you have not taken these steps, and yet you accept a man as a prophet, you are in danger. It doesn't matter if everybody calls that man a prophet. The man's office claims him to be a prophet. The man is revered and adored. Your cultural upbringing insists that you not question, and your church privileges and membership are threatened. These things don't matter, nor should they prevent you from obeying the Lord. Christ gave you a warning. You must now choose whether you will heed it. You must choose whether you believe him or not. It's rock or sand. There is no middle ground. Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these things of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which buildeth his rock, a house upon a rock. And the, and the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was uh, founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. End quote. So that is that. Uh, that's the end of that. Anyway, let's see if we have anybody on. Um, Alan, did you have anything to say about any of that? Let's see here. All right. Um, I'm going to let the rest of the program play out with this morning because I'm going to take a shower and lay down until I have to go back to work. Um, like I said before, uh, I'm working six days a week. I work from 2 a.m. to 6 and then from uh, 3 to 8. And, uh, it, you know, it's only four hours at a time. But I am not, not 3 to 8. I'm sorry, 4 to 8. So I'm just, I'm tired. And um, I don't know. Oh, it looks like everyone dropped off. Let's see. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to put on uh, some music, and then we're going to come back with the video if I can get it to work. So um, here we go. Oh, and thank you for listening to the program and for friendly requesting me on Facebook or following me on Facebook. Anybody can follow me on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. And... Um, uh, there's lots of articles to read there. If you go on my home page and you go over to more and click on that and you go down to notes, you can actually read a lot of stuff. Now, some of it 
I find offensive because some of this is uh, translations of ancient, ancient records. I put them on there because they're interesting, but some of this stuff is in there is like, what in the world are they talking about? So I don't support everything that I put down there, but I just present it. So anyway, I'm going to come back here in a minute um, with uh, The Time Is Now by Jake Hilton, and uh, I'm going to put this music on for a minute. So here we go. I thought that I was all alone, broken and afraid, but you were there with me. Yes, you were there with me. Well, and I didn't even know that I had lost my way, but you were there with me. Yes, you were there with me.
welcome back to The Time Is Now, Leaving Spiritual Babylon. This is the introductory video to Part 3, Part 3A, Part 3B, and 3C, where we will be discussing the New Covenant, tearing the New Covenant apart and looking at it, dissecting it in great detail, Zion, what is Zion, or more specifically, who is Zion, because Zion is not a what so much as it is a who, and then we will be getting into the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are watching this video, my assumption is that you have already watched part one and part two, where we covered the additional signs of the times, ten additional signs of the times that just build on top of the signs of the times that I come out in my other documentary, Only a Matter of Signs, and part two, where we talk about spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation is so, so, so much more important than physical preparation. Physical preparation is not bad, but spiritual preparation is absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. And if you spiritually prepare, if you seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, then all these things will be added to you. And the other side, physical preparation, will take care of itself. So that is my assumption, is that you, by watching this video, you've already watched part one and part two. Now, again, this documentary, this teaching, it's very, very long. And if you're watching it on YouTube, you can always pause at any time, watch two to three hours of it, ponder about it, pray about it, and then come back to it later. Come back to it the next day when your mind is refreshed. And in the video descriptions below, you can open that up and you can find the last segment, the last section you watched, and then just click on the appropriate time, and you can watch the next section and then the next section. Do not try to absorb all of this information in one sitting. It's just you're not going to be able to do it. There is just far, far too much information. This teaching is designed for you to watch segment at a time, segment, segment, segment at a time, going through it piece by piece by piece, getting through the whole thing in about, it'll probably take you about two weeks to get through the whole thing if you're watching to, to, you know, three hours a day. So get, you'll get through it in about you know, two, maybe just a little over two weeks. And it's also designed to watch again. Because, again, the first time you go through, there is so much information, you're not going to be able to get all of it. You're not going to be able to get all of it. You can always go back and you can watch it again. And that's, that's why I love YouTube so much is because these videos, they're created for free. They're uploaded for free so that you can watch, so that you can learn, how you can come to know your Savior, Jesus Christ, the God in whom we serve. So without any further ado, we're going to get right into part three. This is a part three introduction video. The time is now leaving spiritual Babylon. And once again, state our disclaimers is that this teaching is for the doulos, of Jesus Christ. And by now you should be well aware of what a doulos is. It is a slave or a bond slave, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That is who this teaching is for. 
It is not for anyone else, either for the doulos of Jesus Christ or for those that it is their sincere desire to become the doulos. If you're just a churchgoer, if you're just interested in church, you're just going to church and that's all you have to do, putting in your three hours a week for God, if that's your definition of what God wants you to do, well, then fine. Go do that. Go do that. Have fun. And, you know, just I don't want you to watch this documentary if you're going to reject the truth that's presented in it. Because in this documentary, we go through 2,100 verses of Scripture, proving point after point after point after point. So this teaching is for the doulos of Jesus Christ. And in this video, part three introduction, we're going to go into an even deeper understanding of that word doulos and what it really means to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Disclaimer number two, the promised land is the heartland of America. It's the promised land of the Book of Mormon. It's the land that the kingdom of Israel, the house of Israel, the ten tribes, will be gathered to. And the land of Israel will be the land where the kingdom of Judah will be gathered to, the Jews. Number three, Jesus is Yahushua, meaning Yahovah is salvation, or Yeshua, which is the shortened form, simply meaning salvation. But honestly, I prefer to call Jesus by his Hebrew name, Yeshua, just because of its meaning, its, its context of what it actually means. It means salvation. He is the very definition of salvation. And number four, I use Yahovah instead of the Lord whenever we are reading Old Testament verses of Scripture. And personally, I really think that what the, you know, the Book of Mormon should be, and even Doctrine and Covenants should be, is that the Lord should be his name. It should be his name. And for those of you who watch all the way to 3C, to the end of this teaching, you will understand why it is so important that we know his name, Yahovah. So going into a deeper definition of doulos, what does it mean to be a doulos? Strong's Concordance 1401, it should be familiar to you by now. A doulos is a slave, someone who belongs to a mother. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, his doulos, his slaves. The book of Revelation, why so many people have such a hard time with it, is because it was written for the doulos of Jesus Christ. It was not written for anyone else. Same thing for this documentary. It's created for the doulos of Jesus Christ. It's not created for anyone else. Because for anyone else, if you're just a Gentile, there is a very high likelihood that you're going to watch this and you're going to reject the truth in it bringing yourself under deeper condemnation. Not that by rejecting this documentary, it brings you under condemnation. No, by rejecting the word of God that's presented in the documentary, his word, his scriptures. To show unto his doulos things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent, he sent, we're going to define that, and 
word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Sent. What does that mean? What is the Greek word for sent? The Greek word apostolic. Now, without going any further, you're probably already guessing what an apostello is or what English word we have today that we get from the Greek word apostello. Apostle. This is where we get the word apostle from, apostello. And a lot of people are not aware of what an apostle actually is. They think, oh, well, well there's 15 of those in the world. Well, there's, you know, there's 12 of those in the world, the 12 apostles. That's not the definition of an apostle. By actual definition, what is an apostle? Because there are hundreds and there are thousands of apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world today. What is an apostle? Jonathan Corbin, 649, it's a sent one, a messenger. By the strictest definition of what an apostle is, is just somebody who's received a message from someone higher than they are, from an authority, and they're delivering that message. That's all an apostle is, a sent one, a messenger. And who, who was the greatest apostle? Who was the absolute greatest apostle who ever lived or who ever will live? Our Lord Yeshua, Jesus Christ. He is the apostle. He is the apostle. Why? Because he was the sent one from the Father who came to the earth to deliver a message the message over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, throughout Jesus Christ's mortal ministry, he's constantly, all the time, saying I can do nothing but what the Father does. Uh, these are not my words, these are his words. I did not come to give you my own message, a message from me, I came to give you a message from him. That is the definition of apostello or apostle, a sent one, a messenger. And again, there are hundreds of apostellos in the world today. There's thousands of them. In the last days, there's going to be 144,000 of them, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But we'll get more into that later. Nephi was not only a doulos of Jesus Christ, a servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Christ, he was also an apostello. He had a message from him to deliver. That is the strictest definition of an apostello. And again, Nephi, I love Nephi because he's such an incredible example of what it means to be not just an apostello, but a doulos a slave of Christ that he, he's going to do whatever his Lord tells him to do. You say the word, I do it. And that's what a doulos does in that doulos slave Lord relationship. And you that will 
partake of the goodness of God and respect the words of the Jews and also my words and the words which shall proceed forth out of the mouth of the Lamb of God, behold, I bid you an everlasting farewell. For these words shall condemn you at the last day. For what I feel on earth shall be brought against you at the judgment bar. For thus hath the Lord as Yahovah commanded me, and I must obey. I have to obey. And these are his last words. This is how he closes his second book. Now, someone that might read that and they're like, well, it's like he doesn't even have any free agency. It's like, well, he, he's a slave and uh, he, he, you know, God has stolen his free agency. No, you don't obey. A doulos does not obey God out of force. God is not a God of force and compulsion and control. That's the God of this world. That's Lucifer. He is the God of force and control and compulsion. And tyranny, a tyranny. No, no. Doulos of Jesus Christ are the people that they obey him because they love him. In absolutely no way is being a doulos of Christ being a, a blind servant or that you follow Christ in blind faith. On the contrary, having that perfect love of Jesus Christ, that you love God with all your might, might, mind, strength, and soul, that is what actually allows you to see. He gives you eyes to see, and because he gives you those eyes to see his infinite truth, you just, you're filled with an incredible desire and longing to obey him because it's so wonderful and so delicious. Keeping his commandments, his commandments are not burdensome, as it says in the New Testament. They're not grievous. In its strictest definition, what a is, is one who serves his master because he wants to serve his master. He serves his master because he loves his master. And this is plainly taught in Exodus chapter 21. Now, the word here in Exodus 21 is not doulos, because doulos is a Greek word. But the word in Hebrew is abed. But it's definition. It's the same thing. It's the same definition as doulos. And it reads, and if the servant, the abed, shall plainly say, I love my master, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the door post. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And the servant shall serve the master forever. Now this was a, this is part of God's law. And it was given, again, there's so much physical ordinances that take place, they, it's designed, its purpose is to teach spiritual truth here. Now, in this context, what it's saying is that if there's a man that is a servant to another man, his master, and after he's paid off his debt and he's 
able to go free, he says, but I don't want to go free. I love my master. I want to continue to serve my master. Then what happens is the master takes his servant to the judges, and the master, in the presence of the judges, declares that this man is my servant. And then the servant declares, this man is my master. I love my master. I want to keep serving him. I want to continue to serve him. So then what does the master do? The master then takes his servant or the doorpost, and he takes an all. And we're going to, I'm going to show you what an all is in just a second. And he takes an all, and he bores his ear right to the doorpost. Pretty painful, I imagine. And then once, it's basically getting a, uh, an earring is what's going on. Is that he bores his ear through, he's got a nice hole in his ear, and then he puts an earring in here. And that earring in the ear of the servant shows everyone, again, it's a physical symbol teaching spiritual truth here. Always keep that in mind. That physical symbol of that earring shows everyone who sees the earring that that person belongs to his master. And that person received that earring because he loves his master. And once the master has driven that ball through the servant's ear and that servant has received that earring, the servant and the master go back before the judges and the master says, his words are my words. What he says, I trust this man so much that what he says, you can trust that they are coming from me. That he won't say anything. My servant will never, ever say anything unless it is from me, the master. So what is an all? Well, this is a modern version of what an all is. Practically everybody recognizes that this is an all. But an ancient version of an all was slightly different. Same concept, same purpose, but not quite as sharp. That would be an ancient all right there, actually carved out of bone in this example. And it would be something like that, an instrument like that, that the master would take his servant over the doorpost and bore his ear through with this all and then put the ear in, in his ear. Well, I certainly give credit where credit is due, and this is from Justin Franklin. When I read this in the article, it just, wow, I mean, really opened my eyes. Now, this only works in English because the Hebrew word for all is totally different. But at least in English, there's a really cool analogy that can be formed with giving your all to God. There's another word in English that sounds exactly the same, but means something totally different. And that is all, as in to give your all. And is that not fascinating that the scriptures teach, and Jesus answers him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, shema, listen and obey, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. 
This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. A doulos, a slave of Christ, is someone who gives their all to God. That is a doulos. And someone that's willing to do that, that is willing to make that what was the the, the, the altar the ear? It was a blood covenant. But this is a blood covenant. When that blood ran down the ear, you know, from the ear down the neck, he's saying, this is a blood covenant I am making with my master that I am going to serve him. I give my all to him. That is a doulos, or in Hebrew, an abet. When that happens, when a pastor and a servant have that relationship with another, that the servant, the duo, serves his matter out of love, the master gives him a ring, a ring that is placed on the servant's finger, that wherever the servant goes, he has the authority of his master. He has his master's authority to say what his master says, and do what his master does. As we turn to the scripture from DNC 1, what I the Lord have spoken, I have spoken, and I speak myself, and the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, the Greek word would be doulos, it is the same. When a servant of God, an apostella, a doulos of Christ is speaking, if they are in fact his doulos, and they have his authority, it is the same as if he were saying it himself. As if he were saying it himself. And that is, those are the people this teaching is for. I want to reach those people, either those who already are the servants of Christ or those people that it is their greatest desire to become the doulos of Christ. They love their master. They want to serve him and love him. They want to give their all to him. And if that is not you, then I can guarantee you that part three of this teaching, which is the deepest you know, teaching that, I mean, we go so, so, so deep. But if you are not ready to receive this message, then there's a very, very high likelihood that you'll reject the message. And if you reject the message, not the documentary, it has nothing to do with rejecting the documentary, if you reject the word of God, if you reject his scriptures and the truth, the doctrine contained in his word that will simply be presented in this documentary, if you reject it, you will simply bring yourself under, under greater condemnation. For he who sins against the greater light receives the greater condemnation. And I don't want that. 
right here in this part three introductory video, I am telling you, unless you are prepared, unless you want to keep going and learn some of the deepest truths you probably have ever heard, contained in the Word of God, and again, that's all that this teaching is about, part three, A, B, and C, the only thing I can do is expound on what's already in Scripture. Not like I'm going to be sharing with you something that's not already there. But perhaps, after watching this teaching, your eyes may be opened to see some of the truth that is there. But unfortunately, most people just they, they go these over. They, they read it and they just they, they don't it doesn't connect. It doesn't you know there, there's nothing. It just doesn't connect up here. Watching this teaching, hopefully that will change. But if you want to be the doer, if you want to give your all to God and to make covenants with Him and keep covenants with Him by sacrifice, by sacrificing your all, hopefully you're getting the context there, then please keep watching and watch the whole part three of the teaching. If you start part three, A, you've got to finish it because part three, A, B, and C, they're so interconnected with one another that if you start watching it, you have to finish it. The teaching outlines, we've already gone through the what and the why, the 10 additional signs of the times, and spiritual preparation for the Great Tribulation. Part three, we're going to go through the who, the who and the how. The new covenant, the new covenant continued and ran and the fullness of Jesus Christ's gospel. Once again, I state the, the whole purpose, the purpose of this teaching is to become the wheat, the wise wheat of Jesus Christ, the wise virgins. We don't want to be foolish virgins. We certainly don't want to be tares. The tares are burned. They're destroyed. We want to be the wheat. And in order to do that, we need to be fully converted to him. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called the little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven that he's referring to here is the celestial kingdom. He's referring to the highest kingdom where he, Jesus, and the Father are, where they dwell in the fullness of their glory. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that you would awake Awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound, which are the chains which bind the children of men, that they are carried away captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. Awake and arise from the dust of the world. Arise from the dust of wickedness of this world. Awake, my sons and daughters. Put on the armor of righteousness. Shake off the chains with which ye are bound and come forth out of obscurity and arise from the dust. Arise from the dust, my son.
they turn to DNC 132 and they refer to DNC 132 as, well, that's the polygamy chapter. You know, that's the polygamy section. True, it starts out with Joseph Smith asking the question about, well, why did you allow, I mean, Abraham and and, uh, Jacob and Moses and David and Solomon, you know, why why did you allow these uh, to have multiple lives? You know, what's what's the answer here? So God says, you know, I'll tell you that. But God doesn't even start talking about polygamy from the plurality of wives until well, well into the second half of the section. That's the second half of the section. The first half of the section, he talks about his law. His law, which has nothing to do with polygamy. Nothing to do with the plurality of lives. It's one man and one woman. That's the law. That's the rule. The plurality of wives is the exception. The exception. So the reason why I'm bringing this up right now is because I don't want you to think that we're going to spend all the part three and we're going to talk about polygamy. No. <laughs> no. That's the exception. But we're going to be talking about the law. We're going to be talking about the law. And we're going to be defining what the law is as we go through this section. When we define the new covenant, we define mine, and we then define and present the fullness of Jesus Christ's gospel. What that really means. Because that's one of those terms that we, we throw out there all the time. It's like, oh, yeah, the, the, um, the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, that's, that's in the Book of Mormon. And it's like, okay, well, that's a cop-out answer. Tell me what the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Yes, it's in the Book of Mormon, but it's also in the Bible. Many times in the Bible, throughout the Bible, it's in, it's in there. It's in EMC. It's in the Pearl of Great Price. What is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And most people, most members of this church can't answer that question. Or at least they can't answer it accurately. They don't know what the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. They go, oh, well, let me fall back on what it says on, uh, I'm going to go to FAIR, and I'm going to go to BYU and see what they say. I, I checked. Pretty bad answer. Again, it's not accurate. Not fully accurate to what the scriptures teach. So, what I'm saying here with sharing this scripture is you need to prepare your heart because all of those who have the law, the fullness of the gospel presented to them, they have the fullness of the gospel revealed unto them, they must, they must obey it. And the very next verse that we will then read in part 3C, the very next verse, part They will be damned. They will be damned. They will have their progression, and they will not go on to eternal life and exaltation. Heavy stuff. Oh, I know. I know. But for the doulos of Christ, for the righteous, they love the truth, and they have nothing to fear. That comes to the truth. It's the wicked that 
hate the truth because the truth does what? It cuts them to their very core, and they go, I don't want to do that. So if, if you're feeling uncomfortable right now, that's probably an indication that you shouldn't be watching this. Um, it's an indication that you shouldn't keep watching this. Stop right now. Prepare yourself. Spiritually prepare yourself, as we talked about in part two. And then please come back later and watch part three, A, B, and C. We're going to be talking about the three keys or the three ways that you can discern truth, that you can know with a perfect knowledge what is truth. You can know truth without any question because it's one of those things that it's like, well, I mean, there's so many people in the world who say, well, that's true and that's true and that's true. And these so-called truths, they contradict one another. And this is something that Joseph Smith clearly understood. It's called the law of non-contradiction, if you want to be technical. And it simply means A cannot be true and B cannot be true if they conflict with one another, if they're against one another. Because you can't have one thing being true and another thing being true, and they conflict. All truth, if it is that truth, it can be circumscribed into one great whole. It all agrees with one another. It's in perfect harmony with one another. God does not contradict himself. So you cannot have scripture, if it is scripture, if it's truly his word, it can't contradict itself. Because if it does contradict, if, it, if this scripture, supposed scripture, that a lot of people out there are you know, presenting, and we'll talk about that later, if it conflicts with this scripture, it can't, it can't work. Either there's something you're not understanding, or there's a mistranslation, or something has been lost. Again, truth has to agree with itself. And we're going to talk about the three ways you can know what is truth in this part three introduction video. I want to start off with Paul. This is Acts 17. Paul is in Berea, and he's preaching and teaching to the Jews at Berea. There's something here that we that's so powerful we need to understand. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These, meaning the Jews of Berea, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, searched the scriptures. Now, let's Go back 2,000 years ago, and let's put ourselves in that historical context that we need to put ourselves in. 2,000 years ago, what was the scriptures? The only scriptures that existed at the time was what we call the Old Testament. That's the, that's the only scriptures that existed, and that would be the law, the Torah. It would be the prophets, and it would be the writings. In Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word for all, all three that makes up the, the whole Old Testament is 
the Tanakh, the Tanakh, that is the scriptures, 2,000 years ago. The New Testament, the Gospels, the Epistles, I mean, none of these things have been written yet. In the scriptures they have were the Tanakh, the law, or the instructions, the first five books of Moses, the prophets, this is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Zechariah, and the writings, which would be the Proverbs, Psalms, Ruth, Esther, etc. All of these things. That's, that's all they had. That's all they had. So we go back to the Jews of Arabia. It says that they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures the law and the prophets and the writings daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But we all need to be like, we all have to be like the Jews at Berea, in that you receive the word with, with all readiness. You receive it, you were fair-minded, we receive it with all readiness, but we don't accept it as being the truth until we've done what? Until we've searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Paul was an apostello. He was, a, he was an apostle, a sent one, a messenger from Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that you believed him every single word he ever said until you confirmed what he said by what the scriptures teach. Oh, now that's the key here. That's the key. And that's what we all need to do. And that unlocks that first key of how you can know what is truth. Do the scriptures confirm it? Do the scriptures teach it? And until you've searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so, then you're under no obligation to believe the words of any man, anywhere, or any woman. Because anything that they say, if it is in fact true, it has to agree with the scriptures. So, and, and the three, I mean, you've already read many scriptures in part one or two, but we're, we're going to just it's a scripture. That's all this documentary is. Proving every point of doctrine by scripture. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Oh, those, those Jews from Thessalonica. Again, the Jews at Berea, they were more fair-minded than those at Thessalonica. So we got we got some bad blood going on here. We got the Jews from Thessalonica. They, they must not like uh, those at Berea because they came and they stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. They remained in Berea. So those who conducted Paul, who brought Paul forth, they brought him to Athens, Athens, Greece and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, he 
first Silas and Timothy. They stay in Berea. With the, I mean, we got the, the, the bad blood between the Jews at Thessalonica and the Jews at Berea. So, but then Paul, when he gets to Athens, he sends a command to Silas and Timothy to join him in Athens, and they departed. So here we got a, a world map of the Mediterranean region. We got Egypt down there in the south. We've got the land of Judea, modern day Israel. We have Rome, and we have Greece. Let's zoom in on Greece. Here we have these three locations. We have Thessalonica in the north. We have Berea, or we have the, the, the Bereans, the Jews of Berea, who are, again, more fair-minded. And then we have Athens in the south. And it was from Athens, and this is the historical context here. It was from Athens that Paul wrote his two epistles to the Jews at Thessalonica that we now have that are called First and Second Thessalonians. This is where we get these two epistles. And this is the context. With Aphoria, the Jews from Thessalonica come over and they stir up the crowd. Paul says, man, I got out of here. So he goes to Athens. Silas and Timothy later join him at Athens, and then they write these, these epistles to the Jews at Thessalonica. And it's, it's interesting what, what Paul wrote to the Jews at Thessalonica. They turn to First Thessalonians for 5, 16-22, which reads, Evermore, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Question not the spirit. Despise not prophesies. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Verse 21, that's the one we're going to focus on. This is the King James Version. This is the King James Translation. Prove all things. The New King James Version is test all things. The New Living Translation, the NLT, is test everything that is said. Uh, and I always start to get you know, a little bit of understanding of what the, the original Greek was saying. Prove all things, test all things, test everything. The New American Standard Bible translated it as examine everything carefully. Examine everything carefully. The Greek word is dokimazo, and it's Strong's Concordance 1381, which literally means I put to the test. I prove. I examine. I distinguish by testing. These next two are very important. I approve after testing. I recognize as genuine after examination. You don't trust anything, you don't believe anything until after you have tested it, proved it, examined it, distinguished it by testing. You approve it after testing it. You it as genuine after examination. And you can just, when you understand the historical context, it's almost like you can feel the words of Paul, what he's saying to the Jews at Thessalonica. And he, it's almost like he's saying, ah, 
Batman, why can't you guys just be more like the Jews of Berea? Why, why can't you be more like those unbinded Jews of Berea that received the word with all readiness, but they didn't believe it until they had documento, until they had searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so, to find out what Paul was teaching was in fact the truth. Test everything. And there's another word, it's, it's the same word, documento, but it's translated another way in another scripture. First John 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit. But try, the word try, it's the same Greek word, try, dokimazo, the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And false prophets can be physical men and women, prophets and prophetesses, or they can actually be false spirits. They can be spirits from Satan who appear to you as an angel of light. And how did Satan appear to Korah as an angel of light? See, we have this twisted Gentile, you know, image of what what Lucifer looks like. Oh, he he's this hunched over, you know, he's got horns and he's got his tail and he's got this pitchfork and he's red and he's this nasty hat and goat hat man demon creature. Now this, I'm not saying that that's, that's the image that a lot of LDS people have, but, but that really is the image that most Christians have. But that's not true. Lucifer, the son of the morning, who we know from DNC 76, he was an angel in authority in the presence of God. He appears quite lovely, very, very lovely, very glorious, very handsome. In fact, um, this was years and years ago, and a friend of mine who had a dream who he saw Lucifer, and he said that he looked magnificent. He was riding a horse, and he was decked out in golden armor. And he had long, flowing, I think he said he was red hair. And he just, he just looked magnificent. And so many people, again, so many people nowadays, I mean, there's, there's people who have visions and dreams and all of these things. And, oh, I, I saw an angel and the angel told me to do this and all this stuff. Oh, you know, believe every spirit that appears to you just because he appears to you and it's like this angel of light. But try the spirits, the spirits, whether they are of God. Because there are many false prophets. There are many false spirits that have gone out into the world. And I put it in here because I know several people in deceived by false spirits. You know, they, they come to me and they, they say, I, I saw an angel and the angel told me to do this. And it's like, holy cow. You realize what that angel told you to do? Uh, uh, I don't know. That angel was telling you that there was no such thing as sin. 
know, there's no such thing as death. There's no such thing as, as all of this stuff. You can basically do whatever you want. Hmm. That's the same doctrine that Lucifer, the angel of life, taught Korahorma. Test these things. Test Dokimabdol. Prove. Test. Try. Examine. Everything. Test everything. Because, again, there's, there's many false prophets. Many false spirits that go on out into the world. Test it by what? Test it by what? Let's turn to the times and seasons. Now, I can't prove the author of this article. This is an article from April 1st, 1844, in the Times and Seasons. And I can't prove that it was uh, written by Joseph Smith. In fact, it may not have been. Probably wasn't. However, whoever wrote it, we don't, as far as I'm aware, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know the author. But the concept, the doctrine that's taught in this quote is absolutely true. Absolutely true. And that quote is, we have on the left the actual article itself. That's as it appeared in the Times and Seasons on April 1st, 1844. And what it reads is, if any man I do in 
include myself in that. I'm not above that. I'm not beyond that. I'm not saying that this doesn't apply to me. Of course it applies to me. And if I teach or preach anything or practice anything that is contrary to the scriptures, well, then I am an imposter. I am an imposter. And I am one of these false prophets who's trying to deceive you. The reason why I'm telling you this is because I want you to know that I don't want to deceive you. That's not my goal. That's not my intention. I only want to teach you the truth. Hence, this whole teaching, the documentary, it's founded entirely on the scriptures. How could I be wrong about some of the stuff I presented in part one, say, like uh, Planet X and, and I mean, all this, you find the times about when the, the Great Tribulation will begin and all this stuff? Yes, of course. Because I'm making an educated guess based on the signs of the times and based on the scriptures. When it comes to the eternal truth of God, this truth, that's absolute, never-changing, eternal, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever, if I teach or preach or practice anything that's contrary to that, the doctrine, and set me down as an imposter. And that is the first way that you can know the truth. You test them and you try them by the Word of God. I've had many people, many people, come to me and present Scripture to me saying, this, I know that this is Scripture. I know this is absolutely from God. The following are just a few examples of that quote, Scripture, that has been presented to me. There's the Urantia book. There's the Book of the Remnant. There's the sealed portion written by this guy named Christopher, this fraud named Christopher. And his claim is that he's written the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, which is totally ridiculous, does not agree with the Book of Mormon. We have the promise in the Book of Ether that we won't receive the sealed portion until we stop treating lightly the things we already have received. Like the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon was given to us as a test, as a test to see if we would treat it lightly. What would we do with it? But what did we do? We did treat it lightly. Treated it lightly, which brought us under condemnation. Until we stop treating the Book of Mormon and the former commandments, the Bible and the and the Prototype and the Lectures on Faith, until we stop treating God's word lightly, we won't get the sealed portion. But here we have this prophet named Christopher who he, he has the sealed portion. And then there's, there's the Mentanah records or the Mentanah archives about the Mentanah. I have people you know, who said, you know, this is absolute scripture. Absolute scripture. But the Mentanah record, not only does it contradict the Bible and the Book of Mormon, it contradicts itself. We don't have to read very much of it to recognize that it contradicts itself, and it contradicts the doctrines in the Bible and Book of Mormon. And it contradicts the history in the Bible and Book of Mormon. And then there's 
the New Age movement. Now, this is a really popular one out there. And the New Age movement is filled with their own scripture, which teaches you that there is no sin, there is no death, there, there is no devil. It's just, you know, becoming one with the universe and, and all this stuff. And you, you can do whatever you want. You just need to become one with the universe. And it's, it's such garbage. All of these are examples of false scripture. They're all false scripture because they do what? They contradict the Bible. They contradict the Book of Mormon and DNC and the Prayer of Christ and the Lectures on Faith, which all agree with each other. They all agree with each other. That's scripture. But then we got all of this other stuff. But you don't have to read very much of it. If you know the scriptures, if you know God's word, if you have what's the word, if you have treasured up the word of God, as it says in Joseph Smith, Matthew, if you treasure the word of God, you will not be deceived. And for those people who have treasured up the word of God, you don't need to read very much of this stuff, this garbage, before you come across all of these contradictions and flaws and problems, and you're like, I'm sorry. This, this can't be the word of God. This is nothing more than the words of false spirits, men and women who have been inspired by angels of light, false spirits, and they've written out their own scripture and their own Luciferian doctrines. There is no, well, there is no sin, there is no death, just be, just be one with the universe and all this other garbage, and it's designed to lead you astray, to lead you carefully down to and this is just, these are just five examples. There is a lot of false scripture out there. You need to documento, test these things, prove, examine, try everything by God's word. Be like the Bereans. And that is the first way you can know what is truth. Because the Bible and the Book of Mormon, the Bible as it was written by the prophets, as it came from the pen of the prophets. There's a lot of flaws in the translators, which is why it's so important that you read the Bible in its original languages. Go back to the Hebrew, go back to the Greek, and study these languages, and that's how you can come to a a true understanding of what was really written and what prophets really meant. But again, the translators, the King James translators, and many of these other translations translate words of the prophets through their own theologies, through their own ideas, their own philosophies, through their own lives of the fathers that they've inherited, and that's how you end up with these flaws in Scripture. But the flaws there in the original language go back to the original, and then you can know the truth. So that's the first way that you can know what is truth. Test everything by God's word. And that, I would say, is the most important. That is the most important. That is the first thing. That is the first step. Don't jump to step two or step three until you 
And if he follow Christ, he cannot be a servant of the devil. Wherefore, all things which are good cometh of God, and that which is evil cometh of the devil. For the devil is an enemy unto God, and fighteth against him continually, and inviteth and enticeth to sin, and to do that which is evil continually. But behold, that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve him, which is what? Which is to keep his commandments. Everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and love and serve God, which is to keep his commandments, is inspired of God. Wherefore, take heed, my beloved brethren, that ye do not judge that which is the of God, or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. For behold, my brethren, it is given unto you to judge that ye may know good from evil. And the way to judge is as plain that ye may know with a perfect knowledge as the daylight is from the dark night. That you can know with a perfect knowledge. Perfect knowledge. And that's only the first time he feels it. When we go back to these scriptures, he'll say it a second time and the third time. So the first way to know what's truth is you test everything by the word of God. The second way is to see what kind of fruit it brings forth. Is it good fruit? Does it entice and invite to keep God's commandments? There's a lot of people out there, they, they, they try the fruit, but again, it, it brings forth carnal fruit. It brings forth uh, the, the fruit of sin. It brings forth the fruit of wickedness. Oh, and it, it sin Oh, it, it, it's pleasurable at first, but it leaves you empty and desolate. And there's a lot of people out there that they think, well, well, it, it feels good to me. Does it, does it invite and entice to God's commandments? Does it agree with his word? If it doesn't, then it can't be from God. So all these unfortunate, deceived members of the church, this is not from God. This is just one example of something that's not from God. It can't be. God's word teaches that this behavior is an abomination. Again, what does Warman say? He says, wherefore, take heed, my beloved brethren, that ye do not judge that which is evil to be of God, or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. Isaiah says it, that in the last days there are going to be those that call good evil and evil good. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That put light for darkness and darkness for light. But take heed, my beloved brethren, that you do not judge that which is evil to God or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. Um, it's so unfortunate that so many people, they have no clue who Jesus really is. I'm sure you've seen these, these armbands before. WWJD stands for 
what would Jesus, what would Jesus do? And they, they've never feasted upon the words of Christ, or practically never. They don't know what Jesus actually did in Scripture, but they put on this armband, and then they go out into the world, and they, they imagine up to themselves, well, in this situation, what would Jesus do? Oh, well, Jesus would just love, you know, love everyone, right? And that's what deceives people into doing this kind of stuff, supporting wickedness, upholding sin, and inviting and enticing all people to join with them, to come down and join in their sin. But they wear these bracelets and they join in these parades saying, you know, look, what, what would Jesus do in this situation? What we're really saying is that if Jesus were here, if he were here, he would be doing the same thing. He would be walking in these parades. He would be supporting this type of behavior. And it's like, you have been deceived. You have been deceived. Jesus Christ would sooner be hucking fire and brimstone at these parades than walking in them. And thank God that he's a merciful God, that he doesn't come out in judgment and justice immediately, but he calls you, he he extends his arms to you all the day long, asking you and pleading with you, stop doing this, but come back to me, repent, turn from your wickedness and return to me. And when, when a people has reached that fullness of iniquity, and they're fully ripened in wickedness and iniquity, lawlessness, as the word is, that's when Jesus Christ comes out in judgment. He will demand it. And that's when nations and peoples are destroyed for engaging in this kind of behavior. But again, the, so many people, they're just deluded. They're deceived. I've seen with my own eyes the gay pride parades and members of the church marching in these by the hundreds and by the thousands marching in these parades. And I've seen signs, here's a photograph for you. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. I'm following in his way. It's, are you serious? You're deceived if you think that, well, put on that little bracelet, what would Jesus do? Hmm. Well, I don't really have any clue what he actually did because I haven't feasted on his words. I haven't studied the scriptures. So I'm just going to imagine that I'm going to guess something that he would do. And then you do this kind of stuff. Oh, and then everyone, you know, I bring this up and everyone says, oh, judge not, that ye be not judged. Right? Oh, man, if there's one scripture that people are familiar with, if there's one scripture that people love to quote, it's Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not, that ye be not judged. My response to anyone that tells me, judge not, that ye be not judged, is rest not scripture, that ye be not like Satan. Because when you take that little itty-bitty scripture, Matthew 7, verse 1, totally out of context, which is what most people do, then you are resting scripture. And that's exactly what Satan does. 
to mingle scripture with the philosophies of men. He just adds a little bit of his own philosophies in there. And it leads to your damnation. Rest not scripture that you be not like Satan. How about let's read the scriptures in their full context and let's discover what it really says. First, let's go to D and C and Yea, and I will also bring to light my gospel, which was ministered unto the Nephites. And behold, they shall not deny that which you have received, but they shall build it up, and shall bring to light the true points of my doctrine. Yea, and the only doctrine which is in me. And this I do, that I may establish my gospel, that there may not be so much contention. Yea, Satan they'll stir up the hearts of the people to contention concerning the points of my doctrine. That's another one of those words that we always get wrong. It's like, oh, contention, contention, you can't have any contention. But they're twisting the scriptures and they're twisting what it really means. What, what does contention mean? It means violent contention. It means arguments and it basically means arguments and contention fighting with one another to such an extent that you are violent, that you are, you're coming to blows. I mean, that's, that is the true definition of contention. Simply opening up the scriptures and saying, what you're doing is wrong, and here's why, because the scriptures say so. So many people are like, oh, don't do that, that's contention. You're stirring up contention because, look, you're, you're making this person upset. You're offending them. That's not contention, people. When you just touch the truth, when you just open up the scriptures and say, look, this is what it says. This is the word of God. And all I'm doing is asking you to trust it, to believe it. That's not contention. That's simply teaching and preaching the truth. It's Satan that does stir up the hearts of the people to contention, to violent arguments, violent contention concerning the points of my doctrine. And in these things they do err, for they do rest the scriptures and do not understand them. They do not understand them. So let's go to Matthew 7. Again, it was Matthew 7, verse 1, that says, Judge not that you be not judged. Let's read the whole thing in context. Let's read all the way to verse 5 and see what Jesus Christ really taught. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thy own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote from thine eye? And behold, a beam is in thy own eye. So there's a little speck in your brother's eye, but you've got this forest growing in your own eye. Thou hypocrite first, First, cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then 
shalt thou seek holy to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Jesus Christ did not teach to not judge people. He told them to judge righteously. And we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna prove that again by scripture in just a moment. But what he really taught is that you first need to cast out the beams and the motes out of your eyes so that you are pure, and then you shall see clearly to cast out the motes and the beams out of thy brother's eye. How do you cast out motes and beams out of your eyes? Think about it, for example. Let's say you have something in your eye. You have a little speck of something in your eye. Oh, no, it's bothering you. It's driving you crazy. What do you do naturally? You go to a mirror. And when you look into the mirror, you can see what's in your eye. And with your fingers or with uh, some instrument, you're able to Pluck it out of your own eye off, and now you can see clearly. Is it not interesting that the scriptures, the word of God, is referred to as being a mirror? James said, but whoso looketh into the King James translators translated as a glass, but a more modern translation, more accurate translation by our language today would be mirror. But whoso looketh into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty. And what is the perfect law of liberty? Which is the word of God, which is his law, which is his commandments, and continuous therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Going back to Jesus Christ, Matthew 7, 5. First, Cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Ah, now it makes sense. You look into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, which teaches you all things that you should do. The words of Christ will teach you all things that you should do. Purify yourself, you make your eyes pure by casting out all of your wickedness, all of your sins, and then you're able to see clearly through his word to help other people get the motes and beams out of their eyes. Now, I'm going to give you an analogy here, again, about the mirror and what the, the word of God really is. And this is this is so fascinating to me because in the physical world, whenever we have something like in our teeth, like spinach, <laughs> you got this big old nasty piece of spinach right there in your teeth, you sincerely appreciate it, or at least I know I appreciate it, when someone comes up to me and goes, you, you, you got some spinach right here, big old nasty piece of, you know, food stuck in your teeth. And what do you do? What do you do? I mean, are you ever offended when somebody tells you that you got something in your teeth? I know I'm not. I'm always grateful 
when someone tells me I've got something stuck in my teeth. I go, thank you very much. And then I go to a mirror and I, and I get it out of my teeth. So that's in the physical world. When someone tells you you've got something in your teeth or you've got something on your face, it's usually, you know, you're, you're grateful for it. It's like, oh, you got some, you got some food, you know, right here. You got, you know, you got some stuff, something up here. And you go, oh, oh, thank you. And you get it off. That's in the physical world. We're always grateful for it. So why are we always ungrateful and we're deeply, deeply offended when someone does the exact same thing in the spiritual Realm that you've got some spiritual food on your face, you've got spiritual egg on your face, you've got spiritual stuff in your teeth, and someone comes up to you and says, "What you're doing is wrong." And here's the proof: because God's word said so. Because God says what you're doing is wrong, and we're always deeply offended by it. Oh, how! dare you say what I'm doing is wrong? How dare you say I have something in my teeth? How dare you say I have something on my face? When in reality, it's just you're trying to help them. You're trying to, you're doing the same thing. In the physical, what we do, it's, there's a parallel in the spiritual. You go up to somebody and say, look, God's word says this. We should be doing this. Oh, how dare you say that to me? Uh, how, oh, you, and they, they get so offended by it. They get so offended by it. I, I would not be offended. Now, if somebody came up to me and were able to prove that anything I was doing, that my actions were against the teachings of God that are in the scriptures, by the scriptures, then I would have to go, Thank you for showing it to me. I, I will have to absolutely fix that. I will have to change that. I will get that something out of my teeth. I will clean up my face. I will get that moat, that beam out of my eye. Thank you for using God's word, his mirror of his perfect law, the perfect law of liberty, to show me what it is that I'm doing wrong. And, and that's, that's all it is. Somebody that looks into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty before they look into it, they've got yellow teeth and they've got all this nasty stuff on their teeth or in their teeth, stuck in their gums. But then, after looking into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty, their teeth are sparkling white and clean and there's nothing in them. And that's, that's just that spiritual parallel. This is, this is what we need to be doing on a spiritual level. Everyone. You go to the mirror of the perfect law of liberty and you brush your teeth. You get yourself cleaned up. You do your hair. You, you, got, you got some nasty zits on your face. Well, you look into a mirror and you, you pop the zits. You get them out. All of these physical things we do in the physical world Every single one of them is there's a parallel in the spiritual world. You've got some nasty bits in the physical world. You don't want to walk around with those things. You want them gone. 
and we go to great lengths to get rid of them. You got some nasty stuff in your teeth in the physical world? Brush your teeth. Your hair is all, you know, just a mess because you just woke up and you've only had four hours of sleep and you, just, you look terrible and you haven't shaved in a week. Take a shower, do your hair, shampoo and condition your hair, shave, and clean yourself up. We do all of these things in the physical world, thinking that this is just what you do in the physical world. No, you do the same stuff in the spiritual. You do the same stuff. You pop your spiritual bits. You get their spiritual specks of dust out of your eyes. You put on uh, spiritual jewelry, the spiritual armor of God, your spiritual clothing. You do your spiritual hair. You make yourself look good. And how do you do it? Look into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty. Into God's word. And you can clean yourself up. I mean, I mentioned this concept at the beginning of this teaching, way back in part one. It's what I call the law of cultural majorities. And we are commanded by God to not follow the multitudes, to not follow the majority if what the majority are doing is wrong. Because what is, you know, what is usually popular is not usually right, and what's usually right is not usually popular. Right here, Exodus 23, verse 2, King James Version, thou shalt not follow a multitude of evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. The ISV translates it as, you are not to follow the majority in doing wrong. And you are not to testify in a lawsuit so as to follow the majority and pervert justice. Now, this is what I personally call the law of cultural majorities, which simply states that whatever the majority of the people are doing, what the majority of the people are doing, what the majority of the people think is right, what the majority of the people think is truth, what the majority of the people think the scriptures say, and how Jesus really is, what the majority of the people believe, think, and do, is in most cases, in most cases, actually wrong. Is actually wrong. Now, again, there are exceptions. The majority of the people believe in the law of gravity. That if you jump off a bridge without a parachute, well, you're going to die. You're going to fall to the ground. Most people don't believe that. There are a few out there that don't quite believe that that will happen to them. So, yes, there are exceptions, but in most cases, the law of cultural majority applies. Uh, you might say, well, um, most of the world believe that there's a God. Are they wrong then because they believe that there's a God? No. No, they're not wrong to believe that there's a 
the world believe in the true God? And do, does most of the world have a correct understanding of who and what that God is? Ah, not even close. Only a tiny minority understand God and don't think that uh, that tiny minority is just members of the LDS church. Give me a break. And give me a break. There's, most members of the LDS church do not have a correct understanding of who and what God is. So the law culture majority applies. Do not follow the majority in doing what's wrong. So even when the majority of the world, and it's, it's certainly becoming this in America and many other nations in the world, that what's evil, what's wicked, what's perverse, what's an abomination in God's eyes, well, these are the things that are they're popular. These are the things that, oh, we'd love to do. And look, the majority of the people are doing it, so therefore how can it possibly be wrong? Oh, the majority is usually wrong. In vast majority, in vast majority of cases, the majority of the people are always wrong. The law of cultural majorities. We will be coming back to this again later in part three. But the law of cultural majorities, and we need to continue to teach and preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the fullness of his gospel, his true points of doctrine, and expound on the scriptures until we all are in agreement with those true points of his doctrine, and and we all have reached the point where we all know God for ourselves. And that's the day I'm really looking forward to. Because in the New Covenant, what it says is, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahovah. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahovah. For I will forgive their lawlessness, and I will remember their sin no more. I am really looking forward to that day. I want that day to be here as soon as possible. I love containing people and conversing with people who know Yahovah. And there are many of them out there that do know him. I'm going to use a certainly a cliche phrase that we're all very familiar with, but it teaches the truth. And that phrase is, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. If you are doing these good things, righteous things in the physical world, if you're eating good, nutritious food that is it's not this GMO garbage, but it's, it's raw fruits and vegetables filled with vitamins and nutrients and minerals and everything that your body needs, well, then you're going to remain healthy. You are going to be healthy. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's in the physical realm. There's a spiritual parallel here. And the spiritual parallel is feasting on God's word every day keeps his judgment away. 
if you are continually nourishing yourself with the good word of God, well then, just as your physical body will be healthy by feasting on the good, delicious, healthy foods of this world, your spiritual body, your spirit will be healthy and whole and healed if you are feasting on the words of Christ every day. Just as you need to eat every day, you need to be feasting on his word every day. Feasting. One of this, well, we'll read one chapter and I'll read five verses and, and you, Johnny, you read five verses and you, Catherine, you read three verses and, and we, we go around in a little circle around the table and everyone bored out of their minds. That's not feasting. That's not feasting. Feasting is you just dig into it as deep as it goes and it will go as deep as eternity. It goes as deep as all the mysteries of godliness will be opened up to your mind and your understanding by feasting on the words of Christ and following the path of sanctification to its tended and its intended purpose. A lot of people have asked me the question, well, how? I want to feast on the words of Christ, but I don't know how. How do you truly feast on the scriptures? And I personally have found that the best method to feast on the Word of God is to go to the Scriptures with a purpose. You have a purpose. You have a question that you're asking. There's a doctrine you want God to expound to you, to open up to you. There's something you truly desire. You have a great desire to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Go to the scriptures with a purpose. And when you go to the scriptures with a purpose, seeking, knocking, and asking, that is when God will allow you to find, he will open up to you, and you shall receive. Think about Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, in his own history, he says that he labored in the Word. He had a question. He went to the Word of God with a purpose. And because he went to the Word of God with a purpose, that is when God opened up to him. And quite literally, miracles happened. The heavens were opened, and he was used as an instrument, as a tool in the hands of God for great righteousness in restoring truth to this earth. All starting with a young boy going to the Word of God with a purpose. That is how you feast on the Scriptures. Going back here to the Gay Pride Parade and that overused scripture, right? now that little snippet of scripture from Matthew 7:1, judge not that you be not judged. I say, rest not scripture that you be not like Satan. And everything that I just taught you about righteous judgment, it's true. 
to the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 7.1, which reads, Judge not unrighteously that ye be not judged, but judge righteous judgment. Judge not according to your traditions, but judge righteous judgment. A tradition, the false teachings and traditions, I mean, again, traditions can be good, but most traditions that most people hold are false. They're lies. You inherit these things from your fathers, and they inherit it from their fathers, and their fathers go all the way back to generations. I mean, it was the Lamanites. The, the reason why the Lamanites taught their children to have this eternal hatred for the Nephites was because of their false traditions, the false traditions of their fathers. Judge not according to your traditions, but judge righteous judgment. Do not judge unrighteously, but judge righteous judgment. That's what Jesus Christ really taught. First, cast out the moat from or the beam from your eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to cast out the moats from your mother's eyes and your sister's eyes. And you might be asking yourself, why are you talking about this? Why are you going off on this? I thought this part three introductory video, you're going to be talking about the three ways you can discern truth. You still haven't even gotten to that stuff. There is a reason why I chose to put this in this part three introductory video. And the reason is simply this. If you have been offended by anything that I've said thus far, thus far, if you've been offended, that is a very strong indicator that you are not ready for part three A, B, and C of this teaching. If you've been offended, I mean, if you have been deeply hurt and you say, no, 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 that, 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 that can't be right, then perhaps part three is not for you. You're wasting your time. Go watch something else. Oh, that's weird. Turn that off. All right. I uh, posted the link to this uh, this video that we're listening to. Uh, it's a YouTube video. It's the Time Is Now Part 3 introduction. I've posted it on my Facebook page if you want to go and uh, finish it. We uh, ended it at 1 hour and 45 minutes. I do have to go uh, to work, so i got to get out of here. So um you can find the link on my youtube or i mean on my facebook page facebook.com forward slash l-a-z-u-r-u-s 1977 so uh i'll end with a prayer and then we will uh be back on tomorrow well monday uh at 11 p.m mountain standard time and we do this program every week monday through friday from 11 p.m to 1 a.m and, uh, you know, we'll be back on then. So let's see if I can find a song to go out on. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> I can't get to that song. 
<clears throat> oh, there it is. Okay. All right. I'll offer that closing prayer, and then we'll be back on uh, Monday, like I said. Thank you for listening. Uh, take care. God bless. Our Father in heaven, we close this radio program today. We thank the Father for the spirit that we have felt, for the gospel that has been shared, for the truth that has been shared, and coming to know thee and learning to discern through the keys of truth. We love thee, Father, and we ask for thee to bless us with thy Holy Spirit as we go through this weekend and as we worship thee in the Sabbath. We love thee, Father, so very much. We thank thee for for all that you have done for us in bringing us truth. We thank thee, Father, for thy Son, Jesus Christ, for taking upon himself our sins and our transgressions in the Garden of Gethsemane and for sealing those things and taking them those things away from us upon the cross. We desire to come back into thy presence, Father. We desire for thy kingdom to come upon the earth. And we just praise thee. Thou art holy. And we love thee with all of our hearts. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.